Good morning. Someone who is saved is saved from something or someone. Uh, what are we saved from then, according to the Bible? Um, we're working our way through Paul's letters to the Romans, and this morning we'll learn that we need to be saved because we've been slaved. Look what it says. We'll work our way through one of the great passages in the Bible. Um, Romans chapter 7, and just look at what it says in verse 5. It says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul talks about sinful passions. He experienced uncontrollable, uncomfortable, unacceptable desires and for us, there's nothing surprising here with experiencing things like that. The fact that Paul would deal with them, that's a little bit surprising. That might catch us uh, a little bit unaware. But what's truly surprising is Paul's answer to the question of what arouses sinful desires. And where do sinful passions come from? How would you answer that question? What arouses sinful desires? What arouses sinful passions? Republicans? Democrats? Maybe more on target? Money? Sex? Power? Paul writes, sinful passions aroused by the law. Sinful passions aroused by the law. This is really is a shocking revelation. Uh, sinful passions are aroused by, what Paul says, the law of God. The old covenant of which the Ten Commandments are a part. This is something like discovering a fireman who's been charged with arson. The commandments stimulate the very behaviors that they prohibit. The law spreads the flames it's seemingly tasked to control. Um, we just we looked as we've been working our way through. Paul has been talking about the old and new covenant, and he kind of he compares them to two different types of marriages. Um, The talks about that we are awfully wedded under one of the covenants and that we are happily married under the other one. When he talks about awfully wedded, when he's describing the old covenant, the old covenant, a covenant is an agreement that a superior has with another individual who needs protection. And so what happens, somebody who's threatened goes to someone, a king that's more powerful, and they make a binding contract. And it always contains three things. In the case of a kind of an arrangement that's protective, there are commitments. And this is what the more powerful king promises to do for the least lesser powerful person. 
there are commitments that the king will do. I will come and protect you. I will come and come to your aid. That's commitments. There's also commandments, which the dependent king will have to do. And usually what it meant is that they would provide something. So if I am a greater king and you are subjects of a lesser kingdom and your king comes to me and we make a covenant, what will happen then? I will promise you some things. I will promise you that when you're attacked, I will come to your aid. That's what you get from me. And it's not because I feel bad for you, but this is a binding agreement. I'm promising to do that. Now there's something you have to do for me. You need to give me 10 million talents of gold a year. That's the way it would work. And if you give me the gold, then we're good. Then there's no consequences. If you don't, there's consequences. If you look to another king to deliver you, there'll be consequences as well. That's what the old covenant has. Commitments, commandments, and consequences. What are the commandments? And this is the kind of covenant that happened at Mount Sinai. And what are the commandments that we've been given? The Ten Commandments are the shortened version of them. God promises a lot of things. We keep the Ten Commandments, and if we do, he will bless us. And if we don't, it says he'll curse us. That's the old covenant. Then there's a new covenant, and the new covenant is very different. There's a different kind of covenant that is just about commitments. Now, let's say that I, being a great king, uh, say I'm looking to benefit some people. And let's say I determine to benefit you just because I want to. And what I will do is say, I'm going to make a commitment to you that whenever you are inconvenienced, whenever you're threatened, I am going to come to your aid. You might say, okay, where's the small print? What do we have to do? But if this kind of covenant, there's a diff- it's a divine grant. It's, I'm just going to do it because I want to. There's no commitments. This is what the new covenant is like, awfully wedded to the old, happily married to the new, and now we might have an idea, this is why Christ died. Here's what it says. We can be divorced from the old covenant and married to a new covenant because we've been lawfully widowed. Look what that verse says. You died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. The reason why Jesus died, we could be divorced from the old covenant, which has commitments, commandments, and consequences, and we could be married to the new covenant, which has commitments. That's what Paul says And the commitment is, here's what he says. Read that. This is the new covenant commitment. I will be merciful. The word merciful, it comes from a Greek word, helios. Helios means to be gracious, favorable, merciful, and benevolent. A way we might describe it to be non-reactive. Here's what the new covenant says. God says, I will be merciful, gracious, benevolent, and kind when you commit sins. And I will remember your sins no more. Um, This is what Paul describes, that this is why Jesus came. 
And he says that the law, the old covenant commandments, they actually stimulate the behaviors they prohibit. Um, it's not that they are bad. Look what it says in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What Paul says is human nature, our nature under the old covenant produces sin. Let's continue to read on. Look what it says in verse 7. Let's finish off the last part of that verse. Read through. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Where do sinful actions come from? It's really a pretty easy question to answer. From sinful desires. Would you agree? Sinful actions come from sinful desires. We do wrong things at some level because we want to do wrong things. Why do we desire to do sinful things? This is the thing that Paul says here that's very surprising. Sinful passions are aroused by the law because of the influence of law, the old covenant, the Ten Commandments. It actually stimulates sinful desires, and that leads to doing sinful things. Now, this isn't the only place that Paul said this. He talked about the power of God and the power of sin. When he talks about the power of God, he says it's the gospel, what the children just proclaimed in John 3:16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world so that we be saved from sin. Paul says that the power of sin, well, look what it says in that verse, under slaved, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is, what does it say? Look and see what it says. You look and see. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin, that which sin gets its energy, the power of sin is the law. That's surprising. And, but this is what Paul is saying here. It surfaces some questions and concerns. Wait, 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 Mike. Mike. Are you suggesting then that it isn't right to obey the commandments. Yeah, it is right to obey the commandments. All of the commandments, including the most difficult commandment to keep, which is the tenth commandment, which is thou shall not covet. You know what coveting is? Coveting is wanting something. What's prohibited 
is wanting what someone else has. That's what we're not supposed to do in the Tenth Commandment. We're not supposed to want our neighbor's wife or our neighbor's life. And when we do so, we break the commandment to covet. This is the one Paul wrestled with. When Paul talks about, and we'll read about him being trapped by sin, I'm not sure what sin he's talking about. Well, the sin he's talking about in the context? Coveting. It's coveting. Paul couldn't control coveting. Of course he couldn't. Can you control coveting? Can you control your thoughts? You can determine what you will and will not worry about? How does that work? You get up in the morning, you don't want to worry about what runs into your head, but it runs into your head. You'd like to not think about that thing that you would not want to think about, but you can't keep from thinking about it. We can control our actions, our thoughts. That's a whole nother issue. But here's the deal. In order to please God by what you do, you not only need to control your actions, you need to control your desires. That's a pickle, isn't it? That's a pickle, isn't it? That's a pickle. It's difficult. Well, difficult? I think it's more than that. How do we deal with sinful desires? How do we deal with coveting? In order to treat a disease, we need to diagnose it accurately. If you don't get a good diagnosis... The treatment that somebody gives you in a hospital is not going to be effective. And so um, Paul, fortunately, is honest enough to share his spiritual EKG with us. Now, I'm going to tell you what his symptoms are. Okay, You play spiritual doctor, okay? I'll tell you the symptoms, and you see if you can come up with the disease. Okay, fair enough. Here's what he says. Look what he says, verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Hmm. Verse 18. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Hmm. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. What's his problem? Difficult to diagnose this, isn't it? You know what we usually say when somebody doesn't do the right thing? It's a matter of three things, intellect, emotions, or will. You don't know it. You want to do it even though you know it's wrong? Or you don't want to do it and you know it's wrong, but you can't control yourself. Which one is it for Paul? Intellect or emotions or will? Do you have a diagnosis? Do you suffer from the same disease? You do. You do. I do. We do. We've been slaved. What's Paul's diagnosis? It's going to be surprising. Look at verse 17. So now, it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells in me. Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do you know what Paul's diagnosis is? This is what he says. Sin living within. That's the problem. Sin living within. And when he describes, well, what he's saying, it's really not an absence of self-control. That's not the problem. The problem is not an absence of self-control. The problem is the presence of sin control. See, the deal here, when he's speaking of sin, sin is not an act. It's not just an action here. Sin is a ruler. It's something that reigns, something that masters, something that dominates. That's the way Paul describes sin. It's not just a thing you do. It's a power that seeks to control and does control. That's the way Paul saw sin. Um, it's, sin is like a slave owner. When Paul talks about sin, he is talking about a ruling power. You might see it as sin with a capital S, a throne on its head, and a whip in its hand. In Paul's eyes then, sin is not just an act that we choose. It is a power that chooses us. Listen to what it says when Cain and Abel, you remember that story. They offered their offerings to God. Abel's was accepted and Cain's wasn't. And the more he thought about it, the more irritated he became. And here's what, here's what God said to him. I'll just read this. It's in Genesis 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? Listen to what he says. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. He describes sin as something ready to pounce, to dig its claws in. And once the claws are inside, Cain won't have free will. He will be controlled by sin. That's what's being described here. Jesus died so that, by the way, we could be rescued from the jaws of sin. That's why he died, so that we could be rescued from the jaws of sin. Sinful passions are aroused by, do you remember the answer to that? By the law. Jesus died so that we could be divorced from the old covenant and married to the new one. We'll talk about why that's a better deal. Um, but what we do is we try to use the commandments. I want you to listen to me. We try to use the commandments to control sinful passions. Do you know what that's like? It's like pouring water on a grease fire. What happens if you pour water on a grease fire? It's logical, isn't it? Would seem to be a good solution. If you, anybody ever pour water on a grease fire, it spreads the flames. It doesn't 
it doesn't snuff them out. That's trying to control sin with law is like trying to control the grease fire with water. We cannot solve a problem we diagnose incorrectly. The problem is not a lack of self-control. The problem is not a lack of intellect or emotion or even will. The problem is sin living within. Sin is a master, as a ruler. The problem is sin control. Um, that's our spiritual problem. And what's God's solution then? Now that we get the problem, how do we break the ruling power? Look what it says in verse 22, 21. Excuse me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Let me tell you what wretched is. If you've ever done something difficult and you're worn out, maybe you ran or carried something or were driving on these roads, um, and it's just here's what wretchedness looks like. It's when you're worn out. That's what Paul says. Wretched man that I am. You know what he was tired of? Wrestling with himself. You know what he was tired of? This. This is what he was tired from. Wrestling with himself. Part of him wanted to do what God wanted, and part of him didn't. says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This solution, let me tell you what it isn't. God's solution does not mean that we only want to do what God wants us to do. Can we agree on that? What, what happens in this solution, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, so then I in my mind serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. He still is pulled in two different directions. So the solution does not, now listen, the solution does not mean that you will only want to do what God wants you to do. That's not the solution. It's not Paul's solution, is it? He still is wrestling. Would you agree? Again, this is important. We've got to tack this down. We've got to understand this. And God's solution doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sinful desires. Did Paul struggle with sinful desires after he says, wretched man that I am? Yeah, he's still with one part of him, pulls one way, and another part pulls another way. It, the solution does not mean that you don't struggle with sinful desires. The solution does not mean that you only do what God wants you to do. Only want to do what God wants you to do. It's not what the solution means. What does the solution mean? Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's my question. What would it change if you believed that? Think with me. What would it change if you believed that, even though you're pulled this way and that way? 
even though you struggle with sinful desires, what would it change if you believed what God says is true under the new covenant, that he is non-reactive to your unrighteousness says, that he is helios, gracious, merciful, benevolent, favorable. What would it change if you determined that God's face was the same before and after you did that sin that you do? You know that one? That your sin doesn't change God's face. You say, oh, whoa. What would that do? What we, what we fear is that sin would run riot. That's the trick, isn't it? Sinful passions are aroused by the law. Grace is not cheap. Grace is God's solution to break the ruling power of King Sin with the whip in his hand. As we And this takes time. We're not going to think about God differently all of a sudden. You're not just going to come one week or two weeks. You have to hear about this over and over and over. God removes condemnation in order to promote communication. Again, this might seem too easy. And we're just about done. This might seem too easy. Cheap grace. What about obedience? What about obedience? Look what it says in First John. That's what it says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not been perfected in love. We... Love because he first loved us. Can we agree? The obedience that God requires of us can be diluted, placed, summarized in one word. And that word would be, what does God want from us? I'll tell you what, I'll give you a hint. It begins with an L. The second letter is O. Third letter is V. Anybody not know it? God wants us to love him, others, and ourselves. So if that's the obedience, how do you stimulate someone to love? Can you frighten somebody into loving? There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Fear and love are like oil and water. They displace one another. Okay. Naturally, we are afraid of God. Naturally. Because, well, we just are. How are you going to displace fear? You can try to push down fear. You can try to make yourself believe that there's nothing to be afraid of. That doesn't work very well, does it? It's hard to erase fear. Well, isn't that one of the things you wake up with? Would you agree? Isn't that one of the things you wake up with in the morning? You don't want to be afraid, but there it is. The thoughts, and you try to control them, and you can't. 
Even when you take the medicines, and again, sometimes we have to take medicines, but even those don't work all the time, do they? <laughs> the pharmacist just went. <laughs> what have you found? How do you? How can you control your fear? You know what it says? And, and by the way, we're just about done. And somebody's going to ask you, maybe, how is church? What did you learn? And here's what I want you to tell them. Five words. Okay? Five words. What was church? What did you learn? Five words. The last three are casts out fear. The last three words, casts out fear. Fear. Can you say what are those last three words? What in the heck are those first two words? Oh, there you go. Your husband's love casts out fear. Not if he's not, and he's not perfect. Your wife's love. Your kid's love. That doesn't cast out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Hey, what'd you learn in church today? What'd you learn in church? What's that again? That's God's solution. You know what happens? If fear is high, you can try to push down on fear. But you know what else you can do? Look at this. What happens if you start focusing on being loved by God. Stay with me. You understand? You understand? Perfect love casts out fear. It's like a teeter-totter. When this gets high, this gets low. Don't push down on fear. Be pulled up by perfect love and it casts out fear. You learned, that's what you learned this morning, right? Sin is a power. You can't break it. It's tied to the law. If you try to control sinful desires with commandments, it's like trying to put out a grease fire with water. What should you do? Remember those, well, maybe you do, those five words. That's why Jesus came. So you could go from being awfully married to awfully wedded, to happily married, he dies on the cross so that we could belong to him and to a new covenant. And as we make room for week after week after week, perfect love. And again, come back. We'll continue to talk about love. Why? Because we go soft on sin? No. There's only one way to deal with sin effectively, and it's not with commandments. It's with commitments. That's what he's saying. Make room for God's promises. That's powerful. That's the thing that breaks the bondage that exists. That's what Paul says in here. And we'll pick this up next week and we'll continue to think about this as we go through this series. Come on, let's have a closing song.
God, your words is good news. And what we're supposed to do with news is believe it. And that's what you'd have us to do. I ask that as we hear more over weeks about what the good news is, that it would become clearer in our mind. We would believe it more deeply. Belief doesn't happen overnight. We have very entrenched thought patterns about you that trap us. But as we're exposed to good news and we hear it over and over and over and over, it becomes rooted a little more deeply, a little more deeply, a little more deeply, and we find our heart slowly begins to change. We never become perfect. We still struggle with sinful desires, but we believe you're not condemning, and we talk to you. We have a relationship with you. We, we begin to love you. Would you bring us to that place, lead us in that direction, for Jesus' sake. Amen.